Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome. Hope everyone's enjoying things so far. Uh, all right, I see some thumbs up. That's good. So uh, quick introductions first, I guess, uh, myself. I am uh, Dan Abe. I have the pleasure of um, moderating this motley gang here today. Um, come from about uh, 20 years in uh, games industry. Most recently, I was a studio head at 343 working on Halo. Recently changed jobs and uh, industries a little bit to focus on education. Uh, so still in Microsoft, but working on education in virtual reality and mixed reality. Kind of got a taste for it, got really excited, and uh, wanted to dig a little deeper into it. So uh, a little bit about the uh, about BAFTA. Um, you know, the BAFTA supports, develops, and promotes um, art forms of moving images. BAFTA is a global network of more than 6,500 film, games, and television professionals in the US, UK, and Asia. So, you know, one thing worth mentioning about BAFTA, most people probably don't know, I didn't know until I got involved in BAFTA, that it's certainly, it's more about movies and TV. Uh, actually very heavily involved in games and building out um, a games community. So if you're interested, highly recommend it. It's been a lot of fun even for me as someone who's kind of old uh, and has been kicking around a bit. It's a great way to meet other people who are uh, in interested and passionate. Um, I got involved in BAFTA through work on the VR committee actually a little over a year ago and uh, it's just been an amazing experience. So highly recommend it if you're looking to uh, meet like-minded people, swap ideas, uh, get to some pretty cool events, it's pretty cool. Uh, this is going to be the first time that BAFTA's been at PAX Dev and this event is uh, part of a new strand of monthly international events as BAFTA grows its presence in the US. All the events are either live streamed or filmed for BAFTA.org. Uh, so if you'd like to open up your studios for a masterclass, please either reach out to me at the end or Lisa from BAFTA, uh, who is here somewhere. Lisa, can you raise your hand so people can find you? Uh, Lisa sitting in the back. Um, finally, if you're interested in finding more about BAFTA and joining, just uh, please see BAFTA.org games or talk to Lisa afterwards. She can certainly get your information and point you in the right direction. So. Uh, now let's get to the fun. So let me introduce our panelists real quick, uh, of whom I've made some handy notes based on our conversations over the past little while. So no, I'll spare any, any of the dirt I have learned on no, these guys. No, don't spare it. Don't spare it. <laughs> little while. Please, please spare it, Dan. Uh, so first to my right is Seth. Uh, Seth is the co-founder of Impulse Gear and uh, is a game director on Farpoint and uh, co-founder at Impulse Gear. He prototyped and proposed a new way which I found really interesting, by the way, when I read this, of playing FPS in VR, which led to the PSVR aim controller, which I actually didn't know. Uh, Seth is currently focused on VR games for core gamers. So welcome, Seth. Um, Thank you. <laughs> uh, next to Seth, we have Ryan Cousins, who's an art director at Against Gravity. Ryan's currently working uh, in a VR social club called Rec Room, which hopefully we'll hear more about today. And uh, was formerly an artist on That Dragon Cancer and also worked at Nickelodeon and Midway Games. So welcome, Ryan. Thank you for joining us. Next around, we have Tom Doyle, who's the co-founder of Endeavor One. Uh, Tom is a creator of a premium game content for the VR industry, uh, is, a v is a game industry veteran of 18 years, and was lead artist on two different multi-billion dollar video game franchises. So welcome, Tom. And next to Tom, we have Leslie Caritano. Did I get that right? Yeah, yes. <laughs> uh, Leslie has the distinct honor of having the coolest title I've ever seen, ever. Um, so Leslie has held various gamer and VR-related roles over the past 15 years, and is currently, this is a title, your best friend at AMD, uh, and manages uh, VR relationships as well as gaming. So welcome, thanks for coming, and thanks to all our panelists for joining us. Thank you. So just to get, uh, get things kicked off a little bit, what I'd like to do is just uh, give everyone a chance to get to know everyone a little more, what's driving you, your passions. So I was just wondering if each of you could tell us a little bit about your first experiences in the VR space and uh, what got you interested in the genre, creatively, the industry, all of that stuff. So uh, Seth, do you want to kick us off? Sure, yes, thank you. Um, boy, my first experience with VR, I, before founding Impulse Gear, I was at Sony for many years and uh, as a some people know Sony's been kind of messing around with VR for a number of years, and uh, you know my first experience was with you know uh, is one of those early experiments where they took one of those Sony HMDs and put a move on it, and I was able to try out some of those early demos where it was really just exploring what this could be and what this could mean uh, to video games. So 
that was my first sort of experience with that. After that, you know, I just kind of got more and more involved when the Oculus and other devices hit. Very cool. So for mine, it was probably just like indie games in general. We would be developing indie games on the side, but it kind of devolved into game jams. I'm starting doing game jams with DK1 and DK2, so maybe like two or three VR experiences I made uh, just in the weekend and kind of developed those further. Um, that's kind of where it all started, and from there, it kind of led into Rec Room. Oh, nice. Uh, my background in VR kind of goes back a long time, uh, pretty much when I was a student in college about 20 years ago. Uh, our school that we uh, went to uh, had the coolest computer in the world at the time, which was the Silicon Graphics uh, Reality Engine, and they had a flock of birds set up. <laughs> and in this very primitive 320 by 240 HMD, I started building stuff. And uh, you know, VR kind of went to sleep, and I think recently uh, with the kind of reemergence, you know, it never went away. It just kind of uh, went to sleep for a little bit, and when it kind of woke back up again, uh, it was kind of a perfect time, and uh, our group got uh, invited over to Valve Software to help with uh, the creation of uh, the Vive, and uh, since then kind of uh, quit, quit our main uh, AAA jobs, and uh, we all joined the circus together, and uh, so yeah, that's kind of my story. Um, in my in the previous company that I was at, I uh, worked you know with games for 13 years before putting on a VR headset. You know, it was development kit days and and early builds of things like the Blue and just experimental or experiential things. And um, once I tried on the headset and saw a different world, the kind of the potential of merging with games and the opportunity that I had with AMD made sense. So I jumped on in over here. Nice. Yeah, that first experience with VR is really magical. It's, it's, it's really kind of like yeah. people come out the other side very, very different from a really powerful VR experience. So I, what are the, and now let's just open it up. Um, what are some things you guys find great that VR is great at just overall as a medium? And just jump on in. Uh, sure. I mean, I think one of the things that's really uh, unique about the hardware, what's unique about the technology is... Um, you know, unlike, you know, there's, there's lots of emotion that kind of goes into artwork, you know, whether it's books or music or what have you. Um, but one of the things that's really unique about virtual reality is the concept that it is a, um, you know, an engine of empathy. You know, it allows you to kind of not only experience presence as being a person in a virtual space, but it actually allows you to kind of experience these things firsthand in a way that um, a 2D television screen doesn't allow. And I think that's one of the things that is a really strong differentiator between it and other types of uh, electronic entertainment. So. I think that would be my first thing too, would be empathy and the draw into empathy and knowing the work of people like Noni de la Pena and stuff like that, really um, giving you a sense of what other people go through. The second thing for me is being able to, do, you know, feeling like I can do things that I haven't done before. So, like, I'm four foot eleven, and I can um, do a slam dunk in basketball. <laughs> right? I couldn't do that outside of VR. <laughs> yeah, I think the easy answer is to say that you're fully immersed in the world, and that was a big part of what we did with Farpoint. But you know, I kind of echo a lot of what these guys are saying. What we, what I found really interesting and unique about VR was the sense that you can have these virtual characters and they can have presence and feeling. And when we were developing some of the storylines for Farpoint, we ended up actually making a much more personal experience. So trying not to do the big action blockbuster experience, but actually making about uh, the relationship between two of the characters and how you can experience that by becoming one of those characters and having the other character uh, look at you in the eyes and interact with you and sort of get that feeling that this is actually, you know, it, you know they're not real, but it feels like they have a presence that you just don't get with any other medium. And then I think to, to echo on that, um, on the social side of things, I had a friend who I hadn't seen in probably over a year. And you know, I'd see him from time to time at other conferences, but I hadn't seen him for a year for whatever reasons. And for one day, I told him to boot up Rec Room. He logged in, and his avatar didn't look really like him too much. And even though it was kind of like a simplified cartoony version, 
of him, but still like his height was exactly the same, his mannerisms were exactly the same, the voice was the same. So just that experience of connecting with him on an emotional level and just like being right next to him, even though he's all the way in Japan, across the country, like that experience of standing right next to him in a virtual world, like just totally blew me away. And I'd been working on the game for over a year at that point, but me meeting a friend who I haven't seen in a long time just totally changed it. Oh, that's super that's cool. awesome. So with that, I mean, you know, you're touching on a lot of things, emotion, you know, presence, things like that. So what, from a narrative standpoint then, like what are the things you need to take into consideration when designing something for VR? Yeah, so we did, uh, we did full, you know, motion capture. Um, and actually performance capture for, for Farpoint, and that included you know, getting the actors on the stage and uh, capturing their movements, their facial animation that was processed into the, into the game, as well as the voice acting. And when we were planning this session, a lot of it came out to be like, well, pretty much in VR, we can't control the camera cuts. We can't say, oh, the camera's gonna be here, we're gonna do a close-up mm -hmm. at this point. We couldn't really block it out in a traditional way that you would for a regular game. So we kind of did have to look at it more like a play, that it's, you're putting the player in the middle of something and it's going on all around them in any direction they look. We want to have something interesting and they would have to play multiple times to sort of get the full experience because you might be focused on one character one time and then if you looked at the other character, they're, they're, they exist as well and you have that full uh, performance from the other characters, uh, from all the characters in the scene. So it's really interesting when, the, developing those narrative scenes that we had to, even when we were capturing, we would stand in the middle of the stage with the actors performing around us. So we kind of would get the feeling of what it would be like uh, when you're the player in the game. So kind of breaking down how you would normally do uh, performance capture and setting up those scenes. Yeah, to piggyback um, what Seth uh, mentioned, you know, uh, you know, there's tons of books out there that teach you how Kubrick shot film and how you know, David Lean or John Ford did their shots. Um, a lot of the stuff that, you know, we're working on and, and Seth is absolutely a pioneer on is just this idea of a stage play, okay? You know, when you go see a stage play, like, it's there to entertain the audience, right? Uh, but also, there's a lot of thought that goes into how the action is staged for the actors and actresses as well. And uh, we've been doing a lot of research kind of on that front, which is not only are you telling the stage play, you know, for the audience, but you as a participant as well, there's certain types of action action lines that kind of happen that help communicate that story uh, in its own unique way. Yeah, for us, um, the narrative's a little bit different. You know, we're not working with, with NPCs on a, on a large scale or anything like that, but we're working with other players. So in our sense, the player is narrative in Rec Room. So like, how can we push the player to, like, how can we represent how you're talking? How can we represent your speaking, your languages, your giving you emotion in, um, in a VR space. So designing tools and features around that experience, um, whether it's like um, you can see somebody talking from far away or you can uh, have a person express themselves with some kind of emoji system. Um, these are things that we kind of like push towards in Rec Room to like empower the player to be a narrative element to another player in the game. That's very cool. So, you know, we're talking about how we, you know, how you have to do things a little differently uh, with this, you know, with VR as a medium. What, what are some of the traditional game mechanics like that really still apply? Like, what are the key things that are the same regardless of the medium? And uh, how do they have to change though? Are they identical or are there things you have to do a little differently with some of these key game mechanics? Uh, yeah, I mean, we found in, in building like you know, Farpoint's actually a, a first-person shooter in VR, and we found that there's so many things that still were important, even though it's a VR game. So just how the weapons were tuned and the enemy AI behavior and the actual amount that the players sort of engaged and engrossed in the game, we also found that you know, the more you kept the player engaged in the gameplay and invested in that experience, the longer you can hold them there and maintain presence. So you know, a lot of people talk about presence and maintaining presence, and uh, I, we found that one of the worst things you can do 
is, you know, not give the player enough to do around there because then they get a little bored and they start looking at all the things that don't work in VR. Uh, you know, so you want them to focus on your gameplay and your experience and everything around there. And that includes bringing some of these, you know, more traditional things. Obviously, with uh, what, you know, doesn't work is everything is all about input. So we, you know, came up with a whole new input scheme using a controller, making sure everything is one-to-one. -one. And for us, it was maintaining that above all else, making sure that whatever actions the player does, that's exactly what you see in the game. Um, so that, again, we kind of wouldn't break that uh, and we would maintain uh, the feeling that the player is there and immersed in that world. Yeah, a lot of the, you know, verbs that you have in games are absolutely there in VR as well. It's just a simple matter of, you know, what that kind of, you know, man-machine kind of interface is, you know, meaning the input. Uh, you know, the, those types of things are going to be uh, either uh, either very, very similar or, or drastically different. Um, but, uh, you know, a lot of what uh, is, you know, important and definitely is a carryover from games is just having an engaging um, activity loop, whether that's fun combat or exploration or puzzle solving, but, uh, you know, how those things kind of manifest really kind of boil down to your design, and that's one of the exciting parts about VR right now is there are no sacred icons. There is no perfect formula for how to make a game, so a lot of that is uh, what's exciting about this kind of springtime in VR right now is all of that is kind of up for grabs. Yeah, I'd say, um, kind of want to say, like, things that don't work, like, uh, for me, it was like, like UI, just in games, we have such a strong, like years and years and years of developing a screen and putting UI on the screen. And that just like feels very artificial and different in VR. You gotta be really clever with your solutions of how to portray UI in a meaningful way. So um, for that, that was a huge problem for us and challenge, but um, also uh, composition. Um, if you haven't, if you're just like in a room, the composition can, it's kind of like lost if you're in a 360 degree environment, but like you can still craft a meaningful composition if you're going into a new space, if you're controlling how they're going into that space. So if you're moving through a doorway or coming from like a large volume to a small volume, back to a large volume, you can kind of control what the composition of the scene is gonna look like moving forward. And that can be very helpful for guiding the player forward um, all these traditional um, skills that game developers have of like showing and leading the player can still definitely apply in VR. Um, the last one is notifications. Notifications, it's kind of like back to UI, like it kind of sucks in VR. Like just how do, how do I notify a player? Um, so coming up with a solution for that was, was pretty hard. And we kind of settled on like a subtitle format, which is like, if you're in a movie and the subtitles to the bottom of the screen, that kind of uh, format will kind of like pop up uh, in front of your field of view. And it's not so much like this is an opaque object, which causes like some fighting with your uh, perception of uh, things that are close to things that are far. So that was, uh, those three things really helped us. No, that's great insight, guys. Thank you. So. Just generally, I mean, what are some of the best experiences? I'd just be curious, like, this is what your bread and butter for all of you, you live and breathe it. Um, what are some of the best experiences that you've seen in, in VR? Um, games or otherwise, I'm just, I'm just curious. Like, what's really popped for you and, I, and, and why? Mm, you know, VR has many, you know, aspects of it, you know, in terms of how the user kind of, you know, uh, interfaces with the software, you know, with the game, um, you know, for um, really simple things, not that it's simple because it's just huge data sets, but actually just suiting up my parents and like putting the helmet on them and going through Google Maps, you know, I grew up in a family where we moved around a lot, you know, and just going with my mom and my dad and my sister in Google Maps to all the homes that we lived in and just kind of like being, you know, there from a bird's eye view was, was kind of magical. Right, because you know, uh, not only you know, because we have the shared memory of all those spaces, you know, good times, bad times, and all that stuff. But so, as a non-game 
just sharing that with my dad and going back to our old house in North Detroit and looking at it, you know, after not living there for 30 years. Um, for, for seated controller, like entertainment, if you guys haven't got a chance to check it out, um, go play Resident Evil 7, like after 11 p.m. at night. It is a <laughs> just gut-wrenching, terrifying, uh, white-knuckle experience. Um, and it's a, it's a great game, you know, in, in a 2D fashion, but man, really do you kind of uh, get this amazing experience, you know, and I'm not even somebody who goes to like the theater to go see horror films and stuff like that, but it was the first time I actually beat a game and then played, a, played the game again, like front to back, and then as soon as the DLC came up, without even thinking, I just jammed my credit card in and I was like, this is amazing. So if you guys are a fan of horror, if you're a fan of that kind of a long-standing legacy of like survival horror and all that kind of good stuff, you definitely owe it to yourself to check it out. I think the, the first, like, holy cow, this is crazy piece of content for me was Serious Sam. <laughs> kind of in that same vein where I'm just sitting there trying to shoot as fast as I can, and there's these things, and they, they just look like they're going to, you know, wrap themselves around me. And, the, and, and then on top of that, putting that game on with people who haven't really played in VR before and then watching them for the first time, Hysterical. <laughs> so from both aspects, yeah. That, that was, it's just so much going on. You just don't have time to stop and realize you're not really there, even though it looks stupid like you're not really there, but <laughs> it feels like you are. Uh, besides meeting my friend for the first time in VR, probably accounting was a really great experience for me. Just like, I just love this is gonna happen, it's gonna move on without you, you have like some control, uh, kind of moving the story forward in, in some regard, but like just that experience of like overwhelming narrative all at once, kind of like was just a really special experience for me. So like highly recommend anyone to play accounting if you haven't played it yet. Yeah, for me, I mean, I've been focused so much on uh, gameplay and narrative uh, for Farpoint, that really I, I've been kind of looking at some of those other ones too. I, we got to experiment with a few different things on on that, but it seems like there's so much more out there. So, you know, one of the ones I've been really impressed with is Lone Echo and what they do mm -hmm. with the, you and the other character and the, and that sort of interaction between um, this virtual character and that narrative. And you know, it just seems like there's huge potential there to have to really take narrative in a different direction and have it be interactive. And you get, uh, you know, in many ways it feels like in VR you get nuance out of the performance that you don't get traditionally. And it kind of breaks down some of those, you know, um, uh, you know, issues with the characters not looking real enough or, or, you know, some of those other issues that you would normally have in a narrative. And you get more immersed and you get more bought into that narrative. So. I'm really interested in looking at some of the other games that come out in that vein. So, you know, it's, uh, it's interesting. I think one, one common theme I'm hearing a lot from you guys is that this is new, right? Like a lot of rules are still being established. A lot of best practices are still being established. And I mean, I think it's important that we all, we learn, right? Everything, everyone that does something, we learn what's working, what's not. And these are things that are gonna help to push the medium forward. So I think it would be interesting to talk a little bit about some of the mistakes that, you know, you guys have either made yourselves or um, you know, you've seen others make or just things that like, oh yeah, this, this just didn't work for, for whatever reason. Because I think what didn't work is as important as what worked. So uh, can you guys talk a little bit about that? Hmm, yeah, I mean, you know, as creators, you know, uh, there's always gonna be lots of people in the industry, lots of people in the world that are gonna tell you how to do something. Okay, and you know whether it's every single hardware manufacturer right now has kind of like a best practices. This is what you should do. This is what you shouldn't do. Um, you know those things are absolutely valid. You know, and, and there there's definitely a lot of uh, academics who have kind of weighed in on that type of stuff. But uh, I don't think you could really be a creator. No, no great artist ever follow the rules. So just use those as a guideline. You know, uh, listen to your team. Listen to yourself. You know, um, because you know, people are more than happy to help make that decision for you if you do not yourself. 
uh, and they're more than happy to share their expertise with you. But ultimately, it boils down to walking back from your design, listening to your uh, instincts, and uh, listening to your team. So uh, I feel like over the last couple years, that endeavor has been kind of doing our thing. The, some of the biggest mistakes where we were like, oh gosh, man, maybe they're right, you know, and not listening to ourselves. Not that we're some infallible group of people, but like sometimes you kind of do have to stick to your guns and it's a really kind of delicate art of knowing when to do that. So on Rec Room, uh, we like to ship fast and ship early, ship often. Um, but what that kind of forces us to learn from is uh, our moderation and personal experience of every player. So we didn't have a fully fleshed out moderation system in our game or how to manage your personal experience. And that was really important um, moving forward and like listening to feedback from the players and developing that system over the course of like a year. It's also an ongoing development cost. That, like moving forward, we will always be investing in developing the system. It's, there is no perfect system or best practice right now, and we're still learning this day, like how to change it and how to improve it. So, but also just recognizing that and like, how should I be supporting my players? How um, can we make the moderation system better? And like, just over time, it's becoming a more and more self-reliant and self-fleshed uh, out feature that um, players are starting to really appreciate. So yeah, I mean, I, I might share something that's a little more technical that we kind of did wrong. Um, so with Farpoint, it was really important for us to have full movement through the environment. And obviously, as, as was mentioned, it goes against a lot of the guidelines. But we found if you were able to move uh, without using rotation, you know, we can make a very comfortable experience. If most, all the rotation that you're doing is by moving your body and your head, and you have this controller in your hands, that, that helps ground you. Um, but one of the issues we came up with was that uh, at first when we implemented it, we had, you know, control, we had the controls be mapped to be the perspective of a controller. So uh, if you push forward on the analog stick, forward on the controller, you would move forward. Well, if you aren't holding the controller, you know, forward, uh, you know, it, there was this big separation between which way you're holding the controller and which way the uh, character is facing. So the character is facing this way, and I turn like, oh. <laughs> I turn off to the side, and I push forward. I'd move in this direction. So we had these kind of issues where people were moving in directions they couldn't understand why they were doing that. So we were able to, you know, kind of look at that problem and come up with a new solution where actually we just kind of rotate uh, the controls on on the controller by, you know, the direction the controller is being held. So. Uh, we took it, instead of being controller relative, which direction you push on the analog stick is which direction your character would move to, just like make it so that whichever direction the player pushes on the analog stick, they move in that direction relative to the virtual world. So it didn't matter if they were holding it to the left. If they pushed forward, which would be right on the controller, they would move forward because the sort of input would get rotated by the controller. So, you know, we were able to come up with a, a new control scheme that you know, we put it into almost anyone's hands and they're able to pick it up and use it and move in the direction they wanted to move without even thinking about it. Um, and really it was only the hardcore twin stick shooter guys that are like, well, this is weird because, you know, I push forward on the controller and it's, you know, I have to, their, their thing was they have to aim it in the direction they want to move, but that wasn't quite the intention. It was just, uh, you know, you just map that input to the virtual world and sort of overcome some of those expectations for that. And I think two things come to mind. I think the motion is a really important thing. Like just a week ago, I tried a piece of content that was new and it's available. Um, but I think the, the developers of that content were used to the motion in their own piece of content, whereas everybody else who tried it, the movement was so awkward and nauseating, really, because there was no no ground and, and it just, everywhere you moved, it just came on you really fast. So I think an important thing is to remember, you know, the, the consumer's perspective. Of the, the, I think the mistake there was the team was just used to what they were doing. Um, the other thing that I've seen is on the, the um, 
hardware side, and it's not that I've seen this often, but this is another mistake that comes up uh, uh, in in my thoughts is um, there was uh, one piece of content that I was working with, and it was having issues on the min spec systems for Oculus, and it's it's really just that the developer didn't test the min spec system, and there was something that, it, there was some draw calls going to the CPU that um, didn't need to be there. So it was an easy fix, but the game had already been released and they just hadn't tested on the min spec. So I think with where we are in VR, there's gonna be a lot of min spec systems out there and we just kinda have to keep that in mind when we're creating and looking at the content. I have, uh, sorry, two more no, samples real quick. Um, we had, when our first groups came out, we were like, trying to play with like, how do we create groups in VR and how do we take a group to an activity? And our first experience was like, well, let's open up the menu, let's find the player, click on the player, okay, add to my group, and then he gets a notification, he goes through his menu, he adds, he accepts, and now you both are in a group. You can now go to an activity and play a game together. Um, it was super convoluted, took way too long, so we kind of just simplified it to like a gesture-based system where you just reach out with your hand, you do a fist bump, you guys both fist bump, you're now in a group. Um, just like ways to simplify that whole experience. Like how can we turn this into more of a gestural? Um, another example is friends. If you wanna become friends, same thing, let's go through the menu, find the person, send a friend request. And now in the game, you can just reach out your hand and shake their hand. If you shake the hand, you're now friends. Um, so yeah, so like supporting those kind of systems um, was a huge win for us. That's actually super cool. Too. I mean, really it just cool. makes sense, right, in, in the context of where you are. So listen, you brought up something I want to dig a little deeper on. I'm going to go <laughs> off script now. Um, no, but I think it's really important, right, yeah. is motion, motion sickness, right? Because yeah. it's something that uh, I know a lot of people and, you know, and friends I have have tried it and I've experienced it myself just like, but I hear it all the time. It's like, oh, yeah, I tried it and I put it on and it just made me sick, so I don't want to play, I don't like VR games. <clears throat> what... So I think it's a massive challenge, right? And I think it's something that we're gonna have to get over. I mean, what are some ways that you guys have seen or, you know, or read about or experienced that really helped deal with that? And like, just again, what are some best practices around minimizing any kind of motion sickness for players? Mm, definitely, you know, uh, whether it's, um, you know, RE7 or Farpoint or our first game that uh, Endeavor made, which was Jump, you know, uh, early days at um, over at Valve, we were uh, experimenting with how these old systems, these old game types mapped. And of course, everyone's dream is two things. Either I want to fly a plane or I want to do some awesome FPS adventure. And the look snapping was really important, you know, having you know, either 30 or 45 degree intervals where you kind of digitally snap in, in rotation uh, definitely help minimize discomfort. Um, but just kind of, you know, anecdotally, you know, um, you know, everyone on our team is like in their, you know, 30s and up. And when we would kind of show our first game around, we'd go to trade shows and we'd get people into the booth. We're just trying to get as many eyeballs as humanly possible on it to get, you know, excitement up. Uh, and we found that the younger people were the less susceptible to motion sickness they were, you know, um, because people who are, you know, age 20 and under, um, their entire entertainment world is through 3D hardware accelerated graphics. That's like, you know, talking to people on this, you know, uh, this panel right now, it's like, oh, don't you remember the time before the telephone? <laughs> it's like, well, actually, no, I don't remember that time because it's been a part of our lives for the entire duration. And while we were kind of going through these um, trade show experiences, if you're pretty much over a certain age, they were like full stop, no, it's like, this is garbage, you know what I mean? Like it makes me feel crazy, I don't like it. But we always found again and again and again that the kids who grew up playing the Call of Duties, the Halos and those types of games, they would get done with their play session, they'd go to the back of the line because they wanted to play again. So it's really, um, I guess my point is, it's very subjective, you know, uh, and some, some of it kind of boils down to people's own tolerances, uh, but sometimes it is kind of an age demographic thing as well. So it really is uh, kind of a case by case thing. Trying to think if there's any young people at the event I was at last week, maybe. <laughs> play by game. <laughs> there is, um, I mean, on the, like, on the technology side, I mean, there's software that's out there that's free 
to go and use, like on GitHub and, and such, like the Liquid VR SDKs and things that um, help with, uh, you know, motion sickness can be caused by lag, you know, the, the latency between what's, you know, what the computer, or, you know, what where your motion is versus if the headset's keeping up with you, you know, that kind of thing. So there's, there's software uh, pieces to that to help. There's, um, uh, you, you know, depending on the content that you're doing, like one great piece of content that I uh, was in a few weeks ago was just you were in a car and everything was happening within the car. So the, the motion wasn't, it was, it was all confined, you, you know, I mean, there was moving outside, but it was like I was in a car, you know, and doing all these different activities and, and such. So um, I think there's some to the type of environment you pick. Another piece of content had no no uh, ground um, uh, underneath. It was like you're just floating in the sky, but you're supposed to do stuff in front of you. And that was, you know, that was a very different experience than being in the car, right? So, um, but anyhow, there's free tools out there. I think a lot of a lot of the solution is just finding the resources, um, you know, depending on which platform you're you're uh, developing for. Yeah, for us, I mean, one of the biggest issues by far was how to handle rotation and moving through the environment. And as I kind of mentioned before, by default, we, we do support like step turn and lots of different turn options. But after testing and playing with it quite a bit, we actually default to off, like no turning. So if you want to turn, you turn your entire body, you turn your head. And that meant that we actually had to design the entire game around that. So. You know, especially PSVR, you have the camera in one position, has to track the controller, has to track your headset. Um, and so we had to define the whole game and, and design all the levels to sort of be based off of you facing the camera or going, you know, 45 degrees one direction, going back 45 degrees the other direction, and make it so that you could play the whole game without ever having to turn and rotate and uh, design the enemies as well. Um, around that so they would kind of, if they do go behind you, they might go back in front of you. So, you know, that is still, to us, that's one of the biggest areas that we continue to explore and to continue to prototype is, you know, how can we get that rotation to be much more comfortable? We're, we're not really happy with some of the existing ones out there. Snap, the snap turn works probably the best for comfort and, and not impacting gameplay too much. Um, the hardcore guys, all they want is a smooth turning. But we know like that doesn't work for you know, the, a broad group of people. There are people that can get used to it and, and don't have an issue with it. But really, for the broader audience, you know, we're still looking at other ways of handling that. Yeah, I think with all the examples you guys gave was like, there seems to be a varied experience between different players. You have your experienced players and your your mom and dad who have just started for the very first time, people are young or older. Um, and for us, it's very much just manage, let people manage their experience. Set the default to something that's uh, comfortable for everybody, but like if somebody wants to go and do that smooth turn rotate, like yeah, there's an option for that. Um, if somebody really wants that step turn, you can do the 15 degrees or 30 degrees or 90 degrees if you want. So like you can kind of manage your experience and kind of find the experience that fits your comfort zone. Um, that was pretty important for us. Another really easy win is just hitting your FPS targets. You know, like, right. is it 90, is it 120? Um, making sure you stay there, because walking forward at 60 FPS versus 90 FPS is just a different experience. So make sure you, make sure you hit, those, hit those targets. Yeah, that's a great one, Ron, thanks. Uh, how are we doing on time? Okay, um, so what are some of the challenges you all see to mass adoption of VR gaming, right? I think we, thank you. <laughs> Constant, you know, there's a lot of conversation around when's this gonna pop, is this gonna pop? I mean, what, what do you think are some of the barriers to just this turning into something that's, that's very, very mass market? Probably, I mean, there's, there's like the, the thing that I think everyone's trying to, to, to tackle right now, right, which is cutting the cord, you know, uh, you know, especially with new concepts like inside-out tracking and stuff like that. You go beyond uh, room scale to what, you know, Alex Kipman calls world scale, where you're completely untethered. 
that's that's an incredible freeing kind of moment, just like moving in uh, you know room scale versus a seated experience. So yeah, cutting the cable huge. You know, uh, mobile computing, uh, making sure you have proper CPU GPU that can create that kind of rich fidelity. Uh, you know, without having a you know five thousand dollar powerhouse kind of PC there. Uh, and you know the last thing, which is the most exciting thing, and I think that's what everyone in this room is here kind of chasing, is just making awesome content. You know, uh, there's a lot of great experiences that are out there made by small teams, made by big teams. Uh, but really, the more that happens, the more those applications start being developed, the more mature these things become. Uh, and obviously, you know, the big elephant in the room is just the price. You know, like once you kind of get to a certain dollar amount, it completely moves the needle for consumers. You know. And and uh, you know, obviously, in the last couple of weeks, it's been pretty exciting because companies like HTC, Sony, and Oculus has made that a way lower barrier for people. So that's just great news for everybody that's working in the space. Yeah, we've seen like some pretty big user increase with the price drops for Oculus and Vive and um, PlayStation soon. Um, so that's going to be, I think, that's a huge win for for price, but also. Just from a gut perspective, like I don't see it really hitting mass market until it's on iPhone and Android, sixed off head, sixed off hands. Yeah, I kind of agree with everything that has been said. Price is a big point, getting it wireless. Um, you know, and, and I also agree that I think one of the biggest issues is content, like getting compelling content out there, getting full game experiences. I think we kind of undersell VR a little bit. Um, it's riding a little bit too much on these sort of uh, smaller experiences when definitely the consumers are there looking for these bigger experiences and uh, wanting to have more full-feature game and longer game experiences. Uh, that There's just very few of them right now. Leslie? Yeah, I mean, I agree with all that, but I think kind of a fundamental thing is still you can't explain VR. You can't you know, ads don't really do it. People don't really convert, so to speak, until they put on a headset. And so that, to me, is the really the big problem. I, I, have, I think there's plenty of content to keep me entertained for, for a while, um, you know, to keep my siblings, my kids, whatever. I mean, everybody I know, I think there's plenty of content to keep them entertained. It's just they wouldn't think to get it if I hadn't ever put the headset on them. And so I think that's the biggest challenge, really, that we still face. That's a great one. Yeah, I mean, in games, you know, we just for so long, we just do the trailer. Yeah. Right, and the trailer does it all. Do but yeah, you yeah. really cannot capture that immersion uh, in a trailer. That's a great, great one. So I do want to leave us time for questions. I, I want to have one more question to our, to our panel before we open things up. Um, what, what advice would you give to someone, and I'd just be curious to hear from everyone on this, what advice would you give to someone who are, who's making their first VR game? Yeah, um, you know, my advice would be to really look at, you know, what experience is it that you can deliver in VR that can't be done in a regular game? And that's kind of something really simple to say, but obviously there are a ton of new experiences and there's a lot of new things that you can do that just you can't do with a traditional 2D game. So, you know, we focused a lot on sort of this, you know, FPS experience, but it wasn't just translating an FPS to VR. It was like, how can we reinvent FPS and VR? How can we fulfill what the consumers think of when they think of an FPS and VR? And that was always one of the things we came back to was like, what are, what's the player expectation? What do they think they're going to be able to do when they play our game in VR? And let's make sure that we really deliver that. And that's the experience that we provide. Yeah, I think uh, in addition to that, you know, I, you know, my advice you know, because a lot of what's being created in VR right now is by like small to medium teams. And, and this piece of advice is not just for VR, but just for games in general, especially for small teams, but, you know, really create a design that you could execute on. You know, so many people, especially people who are kind of coming out of the gate, they have this awesome idea that they want to make. And uh, it's unfortunate that sometimes they, uh, uh, their eyes get a little bit too big, you know, really focus on something that you could achieve because, you know, if you can't achieve it, it's like you never created it in the first place, you know, like as awesome as that idea is, as, as dear as it is to your heart, you know, 
create a concept that is, that is unique, that speaks to the strengths of VR, and ultimately have it be something that you could act on, that you can complete. And that goes for if you're making a mobile game or you're making some premium PlayStation 4 AAA games. Yeah, um, I would also say to check resources that are out there, you know, like I said earlier, GitHub free SDKs to solve problems like, you know, motion, um, you know, and, and different types of things. So I would check those and grab the free SDKs and see how they can help in your development. Uh, I'd say probably ship early and ship often. It's one of our uh, <laughs> company mottos. Um, we don't know all the answers. You know, we, we figure them out as we go, and like we're building this product and we're answering questions while we're in flight. Um, getting your product in front of consumers and asking them questions, asking for feedback, they'll be very vocal about it. They will give you the feedback whether you like it or not, and uh, you can take that and answer the questions that you had. Um, you can validate your designs, you can pivot fast, um, if we were to build the same game and release it today, it'd be a very different game than what we did. Um, taking uh, player feedback and incorporating that into the game was a huge reason why Rec Room is so successful. Um, so make sure you listen to your consumers. Great, thank you guys, that's awesome. Um, okay, with the time we have left, I do wanna leave some time for questions. Um, so we do have a mic set up there. If anyone has any questions, um, Let's let's jump to. Don't be shy. Ah, oh, here we go. Yes. We always need someone to go first. Thank you, sir. <laughs> Hi there. Uh, so um, I was wondering what your thoughts are ab about uh, mixed mode play, where some people are playing on a console or a PC, and other people are playing in VR. If the controls are different, does one team have an advantage, and how would you balance for it? I think, uh, you know, it really kind of boils down to, once again, like kind of the game design. You know, I think a recent success that was an incredible amount of fun uh, was uh, the Star Trek game that came out that was cross-platform. It was a game in which people are actually working cooperatively together. So uh, they're, they're, the, they're not trying to overcome each other. They're trying to overcome a goal, which is take out the Klingon bad guys, you know. Uh, but, you know, given those very different uh, ecosystems, you know, uh, HTC Vive doing room scale. You have Oculus that's kind of doing this, you know, um, seated, seated and sand, standing plus kind of experience. And then, you know, uh, PlayStation, which is, you know, direct kind of camera based. People, it was just so awesome going into the room and everyone asking, it's like, oh, well, what are you playing on? You know, uh, and uh, I think that is a, an incredible success, you know. But obviously, when you're talking about trying to play something that's at a competitive level, whether it's We'll just throw out some competitive names like Dota or Overwatch or things like that. That's where it gets to be a little bit more nuanced, and maybe in that instance, it might be a good thing to kind of you know segregate those players, you know, because you know back back in the old days, you know, it's like oh well, you know, we should be able to play Halo on everything, and it's like well, calm down, you know, like, <laughs> there's going to be some pretty overt advantages, uh, whether it's you know the type of connections, the type of CPU, or just the mouse and keyboard versus kind of controller input. So I think it really is kind of a case-by-case -case basis, you know, hopefully that answers your question. And in VR, it just opens up the field of view. Definitely. Right. <laughs> yes, very much so. Yeah, another one would be, you could also do asynchronous gameplay. Um, one person's in VR, the other people are out. You know, like, what does that look like? I think PlayStation, what's the name of the game on PlayStation? That's, you're the monster, and the, the uh, teammates can attack Playroom. Playroom one? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so like, that's an example of asynchronous. One person's in VR, they have different goals, objectives, people are outside of VR mm. have their own goals and objectives, and so one way you can solve it. Great, yes. Um, so where do you guys see the VR landscape being in five years, for example? Um, you know, right now we're seeing standalone headsets finally starting to emerge from the big players, and I think once that happens, we'll see a lot more people adopting it. So what do you guys kind of envision for being five years down the road when more people have access to VR. Yeah, I mean, with, with mobile computing, you know, things like, uh, you know, new Samsung devices, new Apple devices, the HoloLens itself, you know, like, these are, these are things that are just going to keep on gaining more and more traction, more and more 
uh, kind of horsepower. And uh, I do believe that we will have these kind of all-in-one headsets that kind of uh, fluctuate between AR and VR. You know, uh, there's a lot of terminology, you know, out in the industry, XR, AR, MR, you know. And to me, it is all just the, uh, it's like this permeable thing. You know, what we're talking about is the opacity of this hallucination we're trying to present to you, the user, you know. Uh, so I think that, um, you know, uh, five years from now, I'd love this world where everyone who has a mobile device, and that's probably everyone in this room, right? Mm -hmm. Everyone can kind of enjoy that experience together uh, in a way that is as permeable and as transparent or as opaque as we'd like. And obviously, you know, that, that price and barrier that we were kind of talking about earlier, the more those things get, get whittled away, the more people can kind of get in on the fun. So. Yeah, I think there's, uh, you know, really interesting devices coming out, like the HoloLens and, and some of the other mixed reality um, devices. So that's certainly going to be, you know, a interesting area in five years' time, so or probably before that. Um, just having those sort of experiences that can happen around you in the real world, mixing virtual and the real world, uh, there's huge potential for that. And those devices are, you know, you can see them getting much better and cheaper. Um, but I, you know, maybe it's the uh, core console gamer in me. I, I still think that there's also going to be a separate market for these higher-end VR, fully immersive headsets, um, because you do get a lot more when you start going up to 120 frames per second, 4K screens. These things dramatically make the experience better in VR, um, but they do require more horsepower. So you need faster graphics cards. You need. Uh, you know, better screens, better refresh rates. So it, it seems like they're probably going to be separate for a little while, certainly probably in five years' time, and maybe they'll converge down the road. I agree with that. I think we're going to continue to see higher quality while there is going to be a level of access mobile-wise that people are just going to continue to have. I'm, I'm kind of interested in seeing how, um, you know, how uh, like movies and theatrical takes play in, into VR and how that grows as more bandwidth becomes available. Um, you know, uh, education-wise, I'm, I'm uh, really interested in seeing how that takes off and how it affects um, the kids that we have that, you know, in our education system these days. So, but uh, yeah, I think it's gonna, I don't know that the price point is gonna drop aside from maybe on the, the the current quality, I think on the higher quality, we're still going to see roughly the same price point for getting in on the PC level at least. Could be wrong, but that's what I'm thinking. Higher quality and, and better content at that level, more people on the lower level. I think in probably five years' time, VR will probably plateau a little bit, and AR will definitely be a much stronger case. Um, HoloLens seems a little ahead of its time. Um, and I think there's going to be some really strong competition on the HoloLens level of these like high-end AR devices. Those will probably mesh well with uh, mobile as well. Um, we've got a, probably time for one more question. Any? All right. Well, with that, I will uh, thank the panel. Guys, thank you very much for sharing your insights. Um, was really informative, and I'd like to thank everyone who came out. Uh, if anyone has any questions, like to get any one-on-one -on -one time with our brain trust out here, please uh, don't be shy. Um, yeah, beyond that, thanks very much. I hope everyone enjoys the rest of the week, and uh, thank you all for coming today.